0: Hey everyone, welcome to church. We're glad you're here. Welcome to the barn. Uh, if, if we haven't met yet, my name is Sam Myers. Um, I was the intern this summer. I am no longer the intern. Uh, last week, I prophesied that I would be back sooner than y'all thought, and it's been one full week and I'm back. So I hope you all had an opportunity to miss me over these past seven days. Um, I'm, I'm filling in for Matt today because he is out of town, and I'm glad to be with you guys. Um, and, and just as a heads up for what we're doing today, we're gonna to be in Acts chapter 20. Um, And if you've been here this summer, you know that we've been doing a sermon series on the book of Acts. And last week we did uh, Acts chapter 22 together. And I am a religion guy, but I do know how to count, and I know that 20 is not after 22. Um, The reason that we're not going on to 23 is because I was actually uh, slated to preach the week we did Acts chapter 20, Um, and at the very last minute I got sick, um, and I was in bed with a stomach bug and was not able to make the 90-minute drive uh, from where I live up here um, thankfully, Andrew filled in and he killed it, pat him on the back, get him a beer, whatever he wants. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not doing this sermon on Acts 20 because we need a sermon on Acts 20 because we didn't get one. We got a really good one. Um, I, I'm doing this sermon um, today because as we talked and prayed about it, Pastor Matt and I, we felt like this is what the Lord had for us um, as a community. It's not just because I'm lazy and didn't want to write another sermon, I promise. So that's a nice perk too, right? Um, so we're going to be at Acts chapter 20. Uh, if you want to be sneaky and get there ahead of all your friends, you can turn in your Bible now. I won't tell anyone. It's all good. So you might remember from the first time I preached here about a month ago um, that I told a little bit of my story, how I grew up um, in evangelical churches. And so I kind of grew up with a culture that I didn't think was weird at the time, right? But now that I'm a little bit older, just a little bit, um, I can look back and be like, huh, that was a little goofy. Um, and there are lots of examples of that. Maybe you've grown up in this culture, maybe you're raising children in it, maybe you're just sort of an outsider watching us, and you're like, why do they do that? And we, we don't know either, but uh, one example of that is I was not allowed to read Harry Potter books growing up. Um, some of you are nodding, understandingly. Some of you are like, good, you shouldn't be. I'm not judging anyone. Uh, I, I think my parents thought that if I read them, I would become a wizard. Um, I did not read them until college, and I did become a wizard in college, but I don't think that was related. So... That <laughs> That obviously is an example of something the culture said I shouldn't do, right? Now, an example of something weird that the culture said I should do was something called youth retreats. Now, some of you know what these are. Um, a youth retreat is basically when a church sends its middle and high school students, usually it's around that age, um, off to like a camp somewhere in the forest to spend a weekend away from the struggles of everyday life and to be with the Lord, right? It's a cool idea. I dig it. Um, I actually fell in love with Jesus on one of those youth retreats, and, and now during the school year, um, I serve with the high school ministry at my church down in Fairfield, um, and I go on youth retreats with the kids. So I'm not, I'm not bashing youth retreats. Don't hear me saying that, because I'm sure Will has one scheduled coming up soon. But they're a great thing, but they're also a silly thing, right? And, and here's what I mean when I say it's a silly thing, um, so a youth retreat would generally go Friday afternoon whenever the kids got out of school. You would, you would head up or down or west or east or wherever the camp was. Um, and then you would come back on Sunday afternoon. And while you were on the retreat, there's something called sessions, at least that's what we called them at my church. A session is basically just a worship time with a speaker and everyone's super engaged and the music's all loud and pumped up and everyone is just so into it. And, and on the Saturday night session, picture this, right? So you have a whole bunch of high schoolers and middle schoolers, they're sleep deprived, they're all emotional, they've been hopped up on candy and unhealthy food and coffee because apparently high schoolers drink coffee now. I don't know when that happened, but apparently it happens. Um, and all their, their cute you know, girls or guys, whatever they want, they're all around them. And then there's loud worship music playing and engaging gospel service. And all that to say Saturday night is the night that everyone gets saved on a youth retreat. And I say everyone, I do mean everyone. And you might say to me, well, Sam, I'm already saved. Well, you will get double saved on the youth retreat. Uh, If you are double saved and you get saved again, it goes back to single saved. You don't get triple. I don't don't make the rules, but. (laughs) So I like to tease this because it's funny um, and, and I'm not bashing it because I think God gave us emotions and that's a great thing, you know, and if those emotions contribute to making a choice to follow the Lord, that's wonderful. Um. But as predictable as this Saturday night conversion experience was, uh, there was another predictable aspect of youth retreats as well. And that came actually after the retreat on Monday morning. And I'm talking about the crash. Because, you know, back to their, that was weird, they go back to their everyday lives, they go back to school and the messiness of their families and friends who don't know the Lord and just the reality of life, that life is not like a youth retreat. And suddenly it seems like, the amazing things that happened on that saturday night happened not only a few days ago but in another lifetime entirely. and this is kind of a you know a fun little example but really what this gets at is something way more basic to the human experience which is that transition is hard. everyone struggles with it because god has given us this really cool ability as human beings to become comfortable wherever we are. um even in the struggles we face we find a way we find a rhythm and we call that place home and that's a beautiful thing. But often, at a point where we're okay with the season that we're in, or we're at least used to it, God calls us into something totally different, and suddenly we're left in the lurch because we don't know how to process God bringing us into something new. And when this happens, we can be left reeling, and we can kind of feel like, you know, a young girl after a youth retreat on the Monday at school, trying to figure out how it's possible that God is the same one who was with her on Saturday night and the one who feels distant from her on Monday morning, Right? This is such a powerfully human struggle, and it's a universal one. Um, And it's for that reason that I'm super excited for us to be actually back in Acts chapter 20 today. Um, So in the book of Acts so far, if you've been with us or not, it doesn't matter, it's still what's in the book of Acts, um, we've seen for the most part event after event after event after event, discrete units, um, not really connected to each other by transitions or anything because, to be honest, it makes for more exciting reading to hear about what happens in two different cities rather than the walk in between, right? But Acts chapter 20 is an exception to this. Acts chapter 20 is this really precious moment to me where we get to see Paul say goodbye to one season of ministry and to move on to the next. And he verbally processes this as he talks to the Ephesian elders um, as he's leaving Ephesus for what God has for him next. And so my hope for us today is as we look at this text again, that we'll just consider what we can learn from the way Paul processes this call of God to move on from the old season into the new, and that we'll be able to take from him principles that will guide us to face transitions in a godly way. Before I I do go into this text, though, I just want to quickly define a term. Um, You've heard me say season a few times today, and I just want to be clear on what that means. I'm not talking literal seasons, like fall or summer. I think two examples is enough. You guys probably get where I'm going. Now, a lesser preacher, by the way, would have given you all four examples <laughs> just to fill up time. But no, 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 no church. I never do anything like that. Only the best for you. <laughs> Instead, I'm referring to different phases of our lives, different parts of our story. Um, sometimes they can be really short. I gave the example of a youth retreat which is only a weekend, but in a way that is a season, right? Because that's a different part of your story that doesn't look like the rest of it. Sometimes, though, a season could be years or decades. But as God seeks to do different things in us and through us in our ministries, he invariably calls us from season to new season, whether that's week to week or decade to decade. So that's what I mean when I say seasons. We all good? Cool. So we're going to read our passage together today, which is Acts chapter 20, and we're going to do verses 17 through 38. Um, the story leading up to this part of the book, by the way, is that Paul has been ministering in this city called Ephesus, um, which is in modern-day Turkey, for three years. Um, and three years is a good amount of time. He, he feels at home with these people. He's gone through struggles and triumphs with these people. And now he's feeling God call him onto a new challenge, specifically to go to Jerusalem. And we'll see a little bit of what that involves for him um, in this text, but he meets up with the leaders of the Ephesian church, um, basically to say goodbye. It, it's a really big chunk of scripture, and so I, I would encourage you not to stress out about all the details. You don't need to remember. It's, there's not going to be a quiz or anything. But what I do want us to look for as I just read this, um, I want us to look for the emotional notes of this story. Try, try not to just like understand what he's saying here. For one moment, just try to feel what's going on in this text. So I'm going to read it, and then we're going to hone in on a few things. Um, that are more detailed. So this is Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. I'd love it if you would read along with me uh, silently. So it says, now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now behold, I am constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen, or sorry, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value Nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when Paul had settled these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. When, when I first read this passage, um, as I prepared for the, ser- for the sermon uh, the first time, kind of the image I had in my mind was like, you know, when you tear apart two strips of Velcro, just that sound you get, that ripping and tearing, um, it almost sounds like a version of that is going on in Paul's heart to me, um, that these people that he loves so much, this city that he's learned to call home, um, he's fighting to be obedient to God, even though every part of his heart seems to want to stay. And I hope this is really comforting to us in this way, not because we're happy Paul was struggling, but because even Paul, who was the closest thing to a Christian superhero we have in the Bible, I'm um, excluding Jesus, but he's God, so he doesn't really count. Um, even Paul was broken and, and just like shattered in this moment of transition. So, so this is really officially permission, I think, to all of us. Um, change is really hard. And, and even if you handle it as... Godly as you can, in in as righteous a way um, as you can, that isn't necessarily going to take the emotional pain out of it. And that's okay. Because God has given us what we call negative emotions, too. They aren't necessarily negative to Him, and He can be glorified just as much in our tears and in our heartbreak as he can in our laughter and in our joy. It's not about not feeling those things. And then finally, when we feel okay, we can look at ourselves and say, oh, I'm a good Christian. I'm handling this in a godly way. It's about seeing the pain and still choosing to seek after God. And that's what we see Paul do in this text. But but how does he do it? And what about the way that he handles this is leading me to call it godly and righteous and an example for us? Well, we're going to focus on, on three different ways that Paul handles this moment of transition um, today that I hope we can learn from. Um, there's not an outline in the notes for you. You can make one just number one through three. The reason for that is last time I preached, I gave you an outline that I really thought I was going to use, and thought is the operative word of that sentence, because I did not use it, and I'm very, very sorry, and I didn't want to risk it. But this should be easy, because it's just numbers. Um, So we're going to do that. So just three things that we can learn from Paul, how he handles this transition. So here's the first way that Paul handles this transition that we can learn from in order to take our transitions in a godly way. The first thing he does is he clings to God instead of comfort. He submits to God instead of clinging to comfort. Um, I'm a creature of habit. I think to some extent we all are, right? Um, But I'm the kind of guy who if I'm going to like go eat out for lunch, um, I already know which restaurant I'm going to and what I'm going to get there and which sauces I'm going to get and how many napkins I'm going to pick up with it, you know? Um, And while that's like a a neat little quirk or whatever, what that means when it's applied to bigger things is I really struggle um, with change. And so, for example, when God called me from my public high school in Weston, Connecticut to Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, which is notably not a public high school in Weston, Connecticut. I don't know how much you know about Liberty University or Lynchburg, Virginia, um, but it, that they're not the same thing. I had no idea how to, handle, how to handle it, and I really fought against it hard to try to stay in a place that I was comfortable. And then likewise, when, when I had been at Liberty for four years and was finishing up and I felt God calling me to go do my master's work at Yale, I wanted to stay, not because I was totally happy with my experience at Liberty, but because I didn't want change. And I would rather stay in a place that I was uncomfortable in in predictable ways than go to a place where I didn't know anything that was going to happen. Some of you maybe can relate to that. And and as I look at my life, I see moment after transitional moment um, where I have really fought God. And, and not been ready to get on board with the change that he brings me into. Um, and I say that just to, just to say right out the gate, that this is something I really struggle with. Um, and so everything I'm saying to you, I'm saying to my heart too, hoping that I hear it just as clearly as I hope you guys hear it, because this is really important. Um, I love how Paul frames the change that he's going into in verses 22 and 23. Um, he says, on the other page, he says, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await for me. I love this phrase, constrained by the Spirit, here, because it does not sound like Paul is pumped up for this, does it? It really sounds like he kind of has been taken captive, like he almost has no choice. Like he knows God wants him to go, but he wishes he could stay, and we can't really blame him. Because change is hard enough on its own, but Paul know he's, knows he's going into physical and emotional torture. But, but watch what he says right after this in verse 24, and I think this is so powerful. He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Change is a really scary thing. And in order for us to be able to look into the future and not have our choices dictated by our comfort, we need to be serving a higher master than what we feel. And this is what we see really clearly in Paul because he says his very life or death, the most, you know, the most crucial things in life are incidental compared to following Christ because God's calling on his life is what is ruling Paul's vision, not his own comfort, not what he wants. And that's so, so good because what can so often happen to us is we can get so comfortable in the blessings that God has given us in one season that we hold it with a closed fist and we're not ready to let go and move into the unknown blessings of a season that's mysterious and hidden in the future for us. And the only true antidote to this is not being better or smarter or waiting for our emotions to get in line. The only true antidote to living lives that are dictated by our comfort is by choosing to worship a higher master, which is God, which is exactly what we see in Paul. Because he's been blessed for three beautiful and I'm sure messy and complicated years in Ephesus. And it would be so easy for him to stay. But even though what he, he knows that what, what's ahead of him is hard, he chooses to go. Because his master is God and his master has said it's time to go. And so even though he would rather stay if he got a choice, he knows it's not really a choice. God has said so and he will do it. So he submits to God instead of clinging to comfort. What else does he do? So the second thing Paul does that we can learn from is this: He leaves the past in God's control. He leaves the past in God's control. For Paul, this is a really concrete act, and follow me here, because the past, for Paul, is the Ephesian Church. and even though God is calling him away from that, that church is still going to be there, right? Everything that Paul had to do for this church is still going to need to get done but now God is saying you have to go somewhere else and you're not going to be the one to do it. And he does give some instructions to the elders that he's leaving behind, right? We've seen that, like watch out for false teachers and stuff. And that's good. So there is a practical aspect there of preparing for the transition. But notice what he says in verse 32. He says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This point is really relevant for us when we leave one season, but we're leaving something behind in it, whether that's a job that we're leaving behind or maybe a ministry that we've been in for a while, um, and then God calls us to go. Um, When he calls us to something new and to leave the old behind, we need to trust him alone to be fully in control of what we're leaving in our past. Because though Paul does tell the Ephesian elders some practical things, immediately after that he says, Ultimately, I'm giving this to God, and I'm putting it in his hands, because I know that you, as well as I, cannot predict what's coming in the future, because God alone is in control. And I'd love to go just right now on a brief tangent, um, with your permission, um, and I'm wearing the face mic, so I'm going to assume I have your permission. Um, it's an incredibly hard thing to give up control of something. I don't know if you guys feel that, um, And I've worked in ministry for the past few years as I've been doing school, and and I've noticed that sometimes that's just the worst in ministry contexts because the justification is, well, it's ministry. Souls are at stake, you know? Things got to get done. We do things our way. Um, And I'm sure in your fields there's a pretty good equivalent of people not letting responsibilities go and feeling like if they don't hold on to it, everything's going to fall apart. Um, And maybe you struggle with that as well, but I'd love to just encourage us in this way. Is anything truly in our control? anything? And that's a threatening question, I know. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about myself, not you, and I'll let you do the work yourself. Um, it's a lot easier for me to surrender control of things in my life to God when I recognize that I don't have control over anything in my life anyways. Um, for one thing, I can't control other people, what people say or do or don't say or don't do. Um, I always hated working in group projects back in college for this reason, um, because people would frustrate me by the way they did things. And it's funny thinking about it. As as I was prepping the sermon, I realized that anyone who did any assignment slower than me was lazy. And anyone who did it faster than me was an overachiever and needed to get a life. You guys see what I did there? Because, because really it wasn't about other people doing things differently that was threatening. Sure it was, but that was a symptom because that whole thing was a threat to my idol of control and the feeling that I was in charge of my success. See that? And, And not only can I not control other people, though I've tried, Um, I can't control the most fundamental things in my life. Like, like I could have prepared this sermon, you know, and service could have been canceled because of a freak tornado or an earthquake or, like, you know, like maybe a dozen bears could have taken up residence in the amphitheater and refused to leave until I stopped using bear puns in my sermon, which, by the way, I will not bear with that request. You guys are welcome. I I had to leave you with something. Uh, but but jokes aside, a- am I wrong? I control nothing in my life, and and not to go from bare puns to being all serious, even though that's exactly what I'm doing. Um, my heart could stop right now. It, it seems like we're good for the moment, um, but but it could. the re- The reality of this world is, even in the areas that I have the most responsibility and feel like I have so many things to do that depend on me, um, the reality is even in those areas, I am at best a steward and, and, and not a perfect one. I am not in control. And I, and I have to say, this part of the sermon has a little bit of a different meaning for me now because I planned to preach this sermon three weeks ago and then I got sick and, it, and all it took was a little stomach bug to knock me on my back for three days and, and remind me that I don't have control even enough to, to preach all this stuff that I write. No, my, my only real option then, if I don't have control over anything in my life anyways, I have two, I have two choices basically. Um, the first one I make more than I'm proud to admit. Um, I can pretend I have control um, and then I can inevitably panic um, the myriad times every day that I'm confronted with the reality that I don't have control, whether it's someone who does something that annoys me or whether um, just circumstances happen. I, you know, I get out of the house in the morning, my car has a flat tire or something like that, and I can panic because I thought I had control, and here's this reality bumping up against the one I've constructed against, and I'm not willing to accept it. Or, and I think this is probably the better choice, I can go before God with all these things I feel like I need to control. And I say, okay, you have these because I don't have anything. I don't have any control really uh, in general. So why don't you take this because you say you have control. And I think that's probably more true than the lie I've been telling myself. Um, and I know I've been talking about me because it's less threatening for y'all this way. Um, but I just wonder if any of you here struggle with the idol of control the way that I do. Um, and, and I wonder just if maybe today God wants to set you free from that idea that you have to hold the universe together um, because you're not good at that. You know, you're really not and you exhaust yourself when you try. And I just I just love to believe that today the Lord wants to set you just a little bit more free from the lie that you are the center of the universe um, and the news that he is in control and not you is maybe the best thing ever. Um, so I just, if, if you know, You don't have to hear anything else from my sermon today if you don't want, if you hear that. But it's in this spirit, this knowledge that no man or woman can ever truly control anything, that Paul is able to leave the past in God's hands. And in the same way we surrender the seasons that we leave behind, the ministries, the jobs, the whatever we leave behind as we move into what's next for us, into God's hands because he alone is in control in reality. We even leave just the memories of past events in God's hands, because we don't need to carry these aspects of our past seasons with us either, because only he can control those as well. God alone is in control, and as we transition from one season to another, we're reminded of this fact, and we're forced, as Paul does here, to make the choice um, of whether or not to lay all of our unknowns again at the feet of Jesus, and I hope that we make it. So he submits to God instead of clinging to comfort, and he leaves the past in God's control. And, and the third thing that Paul does is, is probably the most simple as well as the most difficult thing that God uh, that Paul does in this moment of transition. He says goodbye. He says goodbye. Um, we, we read of the emotional goodbye in verses thirty six through thirty eight of this passage, um, and when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the sh- to the ship. I don't know if you've if you've read chapter twenty one of Acts, um, but if you look at the next few verses, you can jump ahead. Um, I won't tell anyone. Uh, You can see that immediately after this moment, he just leaves. Um, He travels by land uh, to a place called Patara, which I've never heard of, but I'm sure it's just lovely this time of year if you want to go there. Um, And then he hops on a boat and he's gone, leaving Ephesus behind forever. And he will never come back, leaving the past in God's hands and choosing to move into the next chapter of what God has for him. Notice what he doesn't do he doesn't stall, he doesn't make excuses for why he can't leave just yet. He doesn't stay around for you know two, three more weeks to get everything in order. Even those, those things would be really easy to rationalize to himself because he knows that God has called him to a new season. And as much as he's loved the old one, he's not about to miss what God is about to do, hanging on to what God has done in the past. So he takes this courageous step of faith and in the midst of all of his emotions and fear, which are so evident for us, and thank God for that, He steps out into the unknown, believing that God is already there. And what Paul does not understand, he believes that God does understand. In John chapter 10, um, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, the one who's come so that we can have life um, and have it abundantly. I see some of you wearing day camp shirts. That was our theme this year. Um, And any good shepherd knows that you don't bring the sheep to the same pasture every day forever. Though maybe some of us would be okay with that. Sheep are simple creatures. They're not stupid. You might have heard that they're stupid. They're not stupid. They're simple. There's a difference there, but they often don't see things the way that shepherds do. And and it's just such a great truth that the Lord knows what we need better than we do. He both makes us to lie down in familiar green pastures as the psalm goes, and leads us beside still waters to what's next. In in all these adventures, we can trust him, whether he calls us back to the same place that we've been serving patiently in for years, and maybe that's the struggle of just staying in a place when we want something new, or whether he's drawing us from a place that we've inhabited for decades into something that we've never imagined and are scared to even think about. And and here's how I know that we can trust him uh, in the known and the unknown. It's the same reason that I've been calling him the Good Shepherd, and I know you guys can't see my notes, but good and shepherd are capitalized, in my notes, and I wouldn't do that about a dude who was just good with sheep. Um, John explains right after the verse about abundant life. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, when the disciples heard Jesus say this, um, they probably would have been a little bit confused, because yes, theoretically, um, if it came down to it, a shepherd would fight a bear and maybe die defending his flock. But that's not what the text says. It says lay down his life. That's the image of a bear coming up to the flock and Jesus just like sitting there and taking it. And so that doesn't really make sense. And this is where the metaphor of the good shepherd kind of breaks apart and actually explodes outward because it's too full for us to understand because Jesus laid down his life for us in a way that no shepherd ever could for their sheep. He chose to take on death itself, the death that our sins deserved and emerged victorious. And with ultimate victory just moments away, What did Jesus choose to do? He chose to become our good shepherd. And there probably aren't a lot of shepherds in here, but being a shepherd is not a glamorous profession. But Jesus chose that for us, victorious and exalted over everything. He chose to become our servant yet again. And sometimes our shepherd calls us into new pasture, as he did with Paul about 2,000 years ago. And when he does, though, that's an intimidating prospect. I'm so grateful that we have... Paul's example in Acts chapter 20 to help us bridge that gap in our own hearts. So as we, as we follow Paul's example, and as we attempt to handle the transition moments in our life um, in the godly way that he did, what does this actually mean? Like, what does this look like for us? Well, in the same way that God has us all in unique seasons, I, I believe that there are unique applications of, this, of these principles. Um, and I want to lay out just three for us today one for each group of three types of people. Um, maybe you're in a season right now and you are pretty sure you should be there. Like you feel really confident, like I'm just loving what I'm doing or even if you're not loving it, you know you might feel God has me here and this is where I need to be right now and praise God for that. I am not here at all to question that. I think that's awesome and there, there's really nothing better than feeling like you're where God has you. Um, but here's what I would encourage you to do. I'm not encouraging you to overthink you know, what's next or where you are or anything. But I just, I just encourage you to offer up your future to God. And that can look as simple as a prayer like this. Like, Father, thank you so much for how you're using me where I am. Thank you for what you're doing with me now. And I just want to say, when it's time, I'll go. Wherever you call me, whatever's next and whenever next is, I'm ready. I'm going to go. And, and by doing this, we position ourselves to be obedient to God when he calls us into the next season, even when we're content in the old one. Because you don't want to be preparing for the battle when you're already in the battle. You want to be preparing for it ahead of time. So that's one thing. May, for a second group of people, maybe hearing me say all this stuff about seasons and about hearing God's voice, you're honestly just like, Sam, I have, I have no idea what, I'm, what season I'm in. I have no idea if God wants me here. I have no idea where God is. I can't hear anything. I just, I don't know what's happening right now. And, and I just want to say, friend, I'm so glad you're here. Um, God usually keeps me in the dark far longer than I like in my life, and some of you might have that experience. Um, But I also know what it's like to go extended seasons where you just don't hear the Lord at all. Um, And I don't have an answer for that. I don't have an easy pray this prayer and that'll go away for you, though I wish I did. Um, But what I do have for you is the opportunity to just look around at this people you're among. Um, The church is not a people who are here to hear me preach or to hear Pastor Matt preach, or to hear whoever preach. We are a messy and broken people all trying to see to seek the Lord together. Um, and you are surrounded by a community of people who would love to walk alongside of you in the unknown of where you are now, and to come alongside of you and pray for clarity, to pray for God to make it evident where you should be, to make it evident what the next step is, and to give you peace in that moment. And so I would just really encourage you, if you're in a place where you're, you feel like you're drowning, man, and you're just, trying to, you're just trying to keep your head above water and wait for the daylight to come in the storm, I just want to encourage you, don't leave here without telling someone that. Um, I think you'll find us more compassionate and, and more loving than you might imagine. Um, and if not, then I hope you'll have grace for us, because we're still works in progress, too. Um, but people need other people, and I hope you'll find some of that here Um, in the community of God. And and to a third group, maybe you're hearing me say all this stuff, and you're kind of hating this sermon because you know that God's been calling you to move to a new season, and you've been avoiding that, and you came to church today being like, well, there's no way the preacher's going to talk about that, but joke's on you, right? Um, Maybe you hear me saying this, and and you should have gone to the new season a long time ago, but you're clinging to the old one. I've, you know, I've been there, like I think most of us have. Um, And I just want to encourage you this way. Um, I, think it's, I think it's time to say goodbye if that's you here today, and you feel like God has opened up a door for you, and you feel like that's where you need to be, um, but maybe you're just holding on to what's familiar. Um, I don't fault you for that. I, I understand where you're coming from, but the Lord has such beautiful things for you, friend, um, that I don't want you to miss the beauty of what God has for you clinging to what you've enjoyed in the past. It's just not worth it. Um, familiarity is great, but being with your father is far greater. Um, and, and God is already in the unknown. He's already in the scary, and he's not afraid. So I'd encourage you to step out of the boat, to leave Ephesus behind, and to move on to what's next, whether that's taking a first step in that direction, or a second step, or a 34th step, or whatever it is. Move forward. And so, and so here's my word for all of us today, whether God is calling us to step into the undefined newness today, or whether we're exactly where God wants us to be um, and he doesn't want us to leave where we are anytime soon. God is with us. He has a plan for for each and every one of us. Um, He has a plan for new seasons and old seasons, for the familiar and the unfamiliar, for what we're used to and what we're not used to. And he goes with us every step of the way. And, And I think a great image of that is what we're about to do in the act of communion, just knowing that God sent his son, Jesus, to brave the ultimate unknown of death and to come back and to tell us that he's made it known and that we can follow him wherever he calls us because even death has been defeated. So let's pray for the new seasons ahead, whether that's this afternoon or next year or 20 years from now, and for the attention to hear God's call and the courage to listen to it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you who you are. Thank you for the fact that the reason that we can look into the future and not be mastered by our fear of what's to come um, is the re- is that you are with us, that you're with us now in this moment, that you are with us in the future 10 years from now. And the future is not unknown to you like it is for us. The book of Psalms says that you have read every page of the book of our story before we were even born. And so we bank on that, God. We choose to take your word at face value and believe that you really are there in the unknown. And we surrender our seasons and our stories to you, Father God. Thank you for where you've called us. Thank you for the seasons that you have each and every one of us in today. And we just offer them up to you because we love you more than we love our comfort. And we believe that you are better than the familiar and what we're used to. God, lead us where you will whether that's back to the same place with the same people that we've been with for 10, 15, 20 years, or whether you're opening a door into something new and fresh, and if we're honest, pretty intimidating. But we serve you, God, and we love you, and we believe in you. And we'll follow where you lead because you've done everything for us. We love you, Jesus, and we offer this all up to you in the name of your Son, the Good Shepherd, the one who goes with us from every season to every new season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.